You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. book of Jonah, chapter 3. Then we're going to read from verse 3 through the end of verse 9. Or verse 10. We'll read from 3 through the end of verse 10 together. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the Lord, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation and it said, in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Let's bow before the Lord and ask his blessing on our time of study. Our Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you that it is clear that we have it in our own language. and multiple copies of it to hold in our lap. May we cherish it, and may we look to it this morning now for Your grace, for instruction in righteousness, for edification and for equipping. We ask God that our time here together in it may be blessed by Your Spirit, that You would bless it with Your presence and Your power, and may we hear Your voice today in the sacred text. We ask this in Jesus' name for His sake. Amen. I want to ask you a series of questions this morning just to get your mind sort of thinking along a certain track. First, what is a revival? What is a revival? What does a revival look like? What happens during a revival? Second, is it possible for Satan to counterfeit a revival? Is that possible? Would Satan have a motive to counterfeit a revival? If it might be used by him to draw people away from God, and to convince susceptible people or needy people or hungry people that God is doing something that in fact God is not doing, would Satan have a motive for counterfeiting a revival? I would suggest that he does, and he would. And if he is an angel of light, then it seems to me that he would at least attempt to counterfeit a revival. So now the next question is, if Satan can counterfeit a revival, and if he would counterfeit, and if he has motive to counterfeit a revival... How then would you and I discern the difference between a true revival and a counterfeit revival? Do you know what constitutes a genuine revival? And do you know what constitutes a genuine revival to such a degree that you would be able to say, no, this is the real thing, and this is a counterfeit? Would you be able to do that? Do you have a theology of revivals, a revivalology? I don't think that that's a word, but it should be a word. Revivalology, it's a good word. Do you have a revivalology? 
do, have you ever asked yourself, sat down and asked yourself, what do I believe about revivals? Let me give you a, a hint and something to chew on over lunch. And here it is. Ask yourself, what is the connection between my theology of salvation and my theology of revivals? Because there is a connection. And it's an essential connection. Your view of revivals will be the logical conclusion to whatever your view of salvation is. I had sort of a reformation in my own thinking about this a couple years into pastoring. I used to meet with a group of area pastors, and it was a very uh, a loosely knit group, theologically speaking. I don't. There was no implied, there was no written, there was no spoken theological guidelines for who was in the group and who wasn't in the group. I think that basically you had to be a 501c3 and you were welcome to show up there and pray. Um, it was very, very loose theologically. Uh, there were a few people there that I had some theological similarities with and, and we would show up and we would get together and, and pray. And I remember one, and it was only a couple years into pastoring, and I remember one time we showed up there we met over the lunch hour and one of the pastors said, well, we asked, what is there that the rest of us can pray for? And one of the pastors said, well, we would request that you pray for our church. We have scheduled a series of revival meetings over the course of the next, uh, over a course of about a week next month, and we would like you to pray for them. And I remember sitting there thinking to myself, and I had never, listen, I had never really thought through the subject of revivals or what I thought about revivals, but I remember sitting there and thinking to myself, there is something wrong with what I just heard. We have scheduled a revival? Now let me ask you a question. Who determines where a revival breaks and when a revival breaks? Who's sovereign over that? Is revival the work of men or is it a work of God? Which one is it? Now if it is the work of men, then sure we can schedule a revival, right? Now maybe I've offended a whole lot of people. There's people sitting here saying, look Jim, I was with you until you said something about scheduling a revival because I grew up in a church where we had revivals every summer or we had revivals on Wednesday nights or we had a series of revivals every third month. Listen, if salvation is the work of men, then if, and if revival is the work of men, then of course you can schedule a revival. Just like you can your schedule, uh, schedule having a porch put on your house or your sink being fixed or your walls being painted. You can schedule a revival just like you would schedule a prayer meeting or like you would schedule a Sunday school or like you would schedule a presentation day at the church or anything else, any other church activity. If a revival is the work of men, then of course you could schedule it. You can schedule it. Not only can you schedule it, but if it's the work of men and if men bring revival to pass, then you can determine the scope of a revival. You can say, we're going to have a revival in Cootie and Ponderay, but not in Sandpoint. We don't like Sandpoint that much. And not Sago, because we don't like people Sago that much. So, Kootenai and Ponderay are going to have a revival, or Bonner County is going to have a revival, and Kootenai County is not going to have a revival. And you can determine the intensity of the revival. And say, these are the things that are going to characterize our revival. And we're going to have so-and-so show up. If salvation is man's work, and if revivals are the work of men, and some people think that that's the case, then you just pray down a revival. Right? We just need to pray. We all need to get together. We will. We will... Schedule it and we will have our meetings and we'll have a special speaker and we'll play our music just right and we'll manipulate people's emotions. We'll have an altar call and play through just as I am a thousand times until finally, pe- finally people say, look, we're sick of just sitting here listening to the same song over and over. Somebody better go forward. And so everybody comes forward and people go forward. We'll even put a few plants in the audience, some to kind of come forward and prime the pump a little bit, get people used to the idea of coming forward and coming down to the altar and we'll have a revival. But 
If salvation is of the Lord, as Jeremiah 2 verse 9 says, then you can't schedule a revival. You can't schedule a revival any more than you can schedule the salvation of a single person. Not a person here is willing to say, this Wednesday night my neighbor is getting saved at 6.30 because I put it on my schedule. And we scheduled it. And I'm going to go over there and I'm going to sing with him and the Spirit of God is going to descend and my neighbor is going to get saved. And listen, if that theology doesn't work in the individually speaking, what makes you think it's going to work on a big scale? If salvation is of the Lord, you can't schedule a revival because God does not bow His knees to your timetable. And He's not going to show up just because you put it on the church calendar. Some people think that a revival is simply the result of, of sort of putting the right coin or the right combination into the God vending machine and out comes the Holy Spirit in whatever measure they want and that they sort of control that power and manipulate that power and direct that power until people get saved and people get revived. What is a revival? Let me give you a definition for revival. A revival is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit whereby God revives in an unusual way the religion or the religious affection of His people. Let me say it again. It is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit whereby God revives in an unusual way the religion or the religious affection of His people. Now, by unusual way, I don't mean signs and wonders and healings and miracles and all of that stuff, speaking in tongues. I'm not talking about that. By unusual way, what I mean is to an unusual degree. A revival is a is a passionate affection for God among God's people that results in salvations and results in renewed religious affections for God and for God's people and for God's Word in a way and to a degree that is not normal among God's people. That's what a revival is. It's an outpouring of the Spirit of God whereby God revives the religion of the religious affections of His people to an unusual degree. Now let me give you a little bit of homework on the subject of revivals. Go home, and I need to be careful because I don't want this sermon to turn into a sermon about revivals and theology of revivals. That's going to be something we could cover in adult Sunday school class before too long. But I want you to go home and I want you to kick around over lunch uh, with your family. Start asking yourself, what do we believe about salvation? What do we believe about revivals? And how then do we know the difference between a genuine revival and a counterfeit revival? And if you're really interested in this, let me suggest a book. Revival and Revivalism by Ian Murray. You can search the, uh, the Internet. You will not find a single good resource on it. At least I couldn't. That one book is the best thing I have ever put my hands on. Revival and Revivalism. The subtitle, The Making and Marring of American Evangelicalism from 1750 to 1858. You've got to love long subtitles, don't you? If I ever do that, if I ever write a book, it's going to have a subtitle say like three pages long. The Making and Marring of American Evangelicalism. And he covers the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, all of the sort of more localized revivals along the East Coast in the 1700s and the 1800s. And he shows how those revivals made and marred current modern-day American evangelicalism. Fascinating book. It's history, painstaking history, uh, not easy reading, but if you like history and you like painstaking history, pick up the Revival and Revivalism by Ian Murray. Now, why do I ask you about revival and get to think on the subject of revivals? Because we're about to study a revival. In fact, we're about to study the single greatest revival in the history of the world. If I'd asked you before you came in here this morning, or even before we started the book of Jonah, name for me some of the greatest revivals in world history. You probably would have said, well, the Great Awakening, the 1740s under Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, or the Second Great Awakening, primarily led by heretics like Charles Finney. Or you might have talked about the Welsh revivals or other revivals in history, but probably none of you would have named Nineveh. Why? 
not so long ago. We really don't think of Nineveh in terms of being a revival. But listen, the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, all of the local revivals, the Welsh revivals, none of those things approximate what happened in Nineveh. Nineveh is the single greatest revival in the history of the world. There's going to be one like it, and I think one that is even going to surpass it when the Lord comes back. And people turn to Him. And Israel turns to Him. And people turn to Him. There's going to be a massive revival then. But until that time, nothing has ever happened. No single sermon uttered by a single servant of God has ever had the effect that Jonah's sermon had in the city of Nineveh. The single greatest revival in human history, the city of Nineveh. We're going to look at it. Last week we looked at the regurgitation of Jonah, the recommissioning of Jonah, and the revelation of Jonah. And that outline was so good I had to repeat it again this morning. Today we're going to turn and we're going to look at Nineveh's response to Jonah's prophecy in verses 5 through 9. And we're going to, we're not going to get through all of this because there's a whole bunch of stuff that comes up in the text. But we're going to look this week and next time we're together at the king's actions, the king's announcement, and then the king's attitude toward God and toward Jonah. The king's actions in verses 5 and 6, and the king's announcement we'll get to verses 7 and 8. So look at verse 5. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in the ashes. Verse 5 and 6, that's the king's actions. Now verse 5, and this is typical Hebrew way of telling a story. Jews and Hebrews in Hebrew literature love to do this. They tell sort of the overall picture or the general statement, which Jonah does in verse 5. The people believed in God. They put on sackcloth, called a fast, and um, they repented from the least of them to the greatest of them. That's sort of the general statement. Verse 6 is the specifics, and it shows what, it's, what specifically the king did and his nobles and the people. So verse 6 kind of describes it. Verse 5 is just generally speaking, the people believed in God. Now we could take that one of two ways. We could take that that the people believed the Word of God. They believed God. In other words, they believed what Jonah said, and they believed the Word that came through Jonah from God. Or we could understand it to mean that the people believed in God as a person. That is, they believed not just the words that Jonah said, but that there was a turning of the hearts to Jehovah, and they believed in God. And the word believe there really implies more than just simply believing what somebody says. It does actually imply and denote a confidence or a trust in the person. And I think that that's what is going on. These people are turning from their sin, and they are believing in the God of Israel. And they are fearing Him, and they're understanding that what He is saying is going to happen, and thus they are believing the word that Jonah spoke to them, that God was going to judge the city in 40 days. So the people believed God, and it says that they called a fast and they put on sackcloth. And I'm breezing over these right now because they're mentioned again in verse 7 and 8 and verse 6, which we'll, which we'll take in greater detail. What I want you to notice is how Jonah says this happened from the least of them to the greatest of them. In other words, there was no class, no social status, no group of people in the city or the area of Nineveh that was unaffected by this repentance. From the greatest to the least. It wasn't just a revival among the wealthy or among the poor. It wasn't just the hoity-toity or the hoi-polloi. It wasn't just the princes or the peasants. It was everybody. Every class distinction has dissolved because the king and all of the people understood from Jonah's message that if the city was going to be spared, everybody had to repent. This had to be a citywide repentance. God was not going to spare the city if just the king repented, or if just a couple of nobles repented, 
or if just the poor in the city repented, but this had to be widespread. And so it was from the greatest to the least of them. Because when God does a work, listen, there is no respecter of persons. God is not interested in your social status. God is not interested in your wealth or your holdings or your, the extent of your kingdom at all. When God does a work, there is, He is no respecter of persons. And so in what God did a work in Nineveh, rich, poor, alike, everybody repented. Now you can understand this because listen, if you had heard the, the message that Jonah had delivered, that your city was going to be overthrown in 40 days, when you have 40 days till judgment, it really doesn't matter whether you're among the greatest or the least, does it? All of a sudden, all your social stratas just dissolve away. All your wealth dissolves away. Whether you were a noble or a nobody, it is just gone. Because when you've got 40 days to live, it doesn't matter whether you're classed with the greatest or whether you're classed with the least. Can you agree with that? Okay. Let me ask you the next question then. If you know you have only 40 years to live, does it matter how much you have here? Whether it's among the greatest or among the least. It really doesn't, does it? It doesn't matter what type of a kingdom you have or what type of a kingdom you are able to build on this earth because it's all going to either the dump or a garage sale when you die. It's all dissolving. And the Ninevites understood it doesn't matter whether I have a lot or a little. If I've got 40 days, none of those things matter. And so everybody turned to the Lord. Now look at verse 6. Eventually, word got to the king. When the king got word... When word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe. Somehow word reached the king. Now if Jonah just went into the city, and the text doesn't say that Jonah sought an audience with the king, or that he knocked on the palace door, or that he tried to get word to the king. I think Jonah just went into the city and began to proclaim in every venue that he could, for as long as he could, this message of salvation. But eventually, a well-informed king is going to hear about this. A well-informed king is going to hear word of what's going on. Because the people would already begin to be talking about it. Some of them beginning to repent, beginning to fast, beginning to call out to God, and beginning to get converted. And so the king would eventually hear because people would be talking. Hey, what do you think of that guy Jonah? Well, who is he anyway? I've heard a little bit about him, but oh no, he's talking. He's a bona fide prophet of the God of the Hebrews. And he says that the God of the Hebrews, the Almighty God, the one supreme being, is going to judge us. He's given us 40 days. About 40 days. Well, i got to go listen to this guy. And so this sort of would start off as just a little grass fire, so to speak. Kind of sparks starting it out. and People would be repenting and talking about it. Eventually it would work its way up through the ranks of society. The nobles would hear about it. They would bring word to the king. And the king would sit down and say, hey, what's going on with this guy? Well, look, he's a bona fide prophet of the God of the Hebrews. And he says that his God is the one supreme God, the almighty creator of all things. He's going to judge us for our sin. Well, do you think it's possible that this, this God might actually judge us for our sin? Well, the Hebrews have stories about like Sodom and Gomorrah and what happened there and things that he did to the Egyptians. And I think that if the Hebrew God does exist, he certainly is powerful enough to destroy us. What else has Jonah said? Jonah has also said that our idols will not be able to deliver us on the day of judgment. And he gave us the phone numbers of some Phoenician sailors who would be able to testify to that fact that our idols will not be able to deliver us on the day of judgment. Because when this God pours out his wrath, this God pours out his wrath and we will be destroyed. Now, somehow the king got word of this. And what did the king do? He got up, and I love the way this is described. He got up, he took off, he put on, and he sat down. He got up from his throne, he took off his robes, he put on sackcloth, and he sat down in the ashes. He got up from his throne and he issued a decree. Now, if the king had from his position of power and from his throne and from his preeminence, his visible exaltation, if the king had issued a decree saying, let all of Nineveh repent, all of you out there need to repent, 
We would expect that from an Assyrian king. But what we would not expect from a king is for a king to be so humbled that he would get up from his throne, walk away from and step away from every symbolic reference of his authority, his dominion, his power, his prestige, and that he would lay all of that aside and sit down with his subjects, like the least of his subjects. And that he would take off his robe and divest himself of his crown and of his scepter and of his signet ring and of everything that symbolized his power. And that he, a king, would be so submissive to this one lone prophet from Israel. Because the king had to think to himself, this man comes into our city, he's traveled a month to get here, he shows up by himself without armed escort, without a military, without an envoy, all by himself, walks into the city and proclaims our overthrow. And he walks into a city of a million people, all of whom hate him, hate his kingdom, hate his king, hate his people, want the destruction of that nation. And he has the audacity to proclaim to us that we are going to be overthrown. Either this guy is a madman, or the God of Israel is telling the truth. that We're going to be destroyed. The king must have reasoned something like that. And so the king stepped aside from his authority, makes himself a basically a subject like the rest of his people, humbles himself, takes off his, his robe, and the king puts on sackcloth. That seems odd to you and I, doesn't it? When I read through the Old Testament of the Bible and I read of people putting on soft sackcloth and, and ashes and throwing dust on their heads and throwing dirt up in the air and making themselves dirty and ragged, and I, I always it seems odd to me because I'm a Western and a more modern mindset. This is completely normal in the ancient world, not just among Jews, but among all of the Oriental, East, and Mideast, it was a very natural thing for them to express all of their emotions or what was going on in their hearts outwardly. And so they would put on sackcloth. I don't think in those terms. Whenever I'm going to mourn or repent, I never say to myself, I need to go change my clothes. I need to go put on some work clothes with some holes in my knees and a really rough shirt and sit down and throw dirt on my head. We don't think that way, but they did. Because in the Orient, they're much more susceptible to emotion. And they're much more willing to allow their emotions to be seen outwardly on what they do and, and who they are and, and in their presentation. And so they would change into sackcloth. Uh, we're not emotional. We're, t- look, take the most emotional man sitting here this morning. He is nothing emotionally compared to people from the Orient or from the Mideast. I mean, I have no emotional spectrum myself. I, I've, I've got two emotions, sarcasm and road rage. And sometimes the two come out together and I can have sarcastic rage or um, a very angry sarcasm. But that's, and some people would argue that sarcasm is an emotion, in which case I'm a lot more uh, emotionally shallow than I first suspected. But in the East, very emotional. And so when they were grieved, when they mourned, when they were repenting, when they were cut to the quick, so to speak, this just came out. Put on sackcloth, lay aside all the comforts. Now what is sackcloth? Sackcloth, sackcloth is like wearing a burlap bag. On your bare skin. It was a very rough fabric made from camel's hair. Prophets wore it. The poor wore it. In Israel, the prophets wore it to associate themselves not with the royalty, but with the poor and the people and the masses. It was worn by poor. It was worn by mourners because sackcloth being so rough and uncomfortable was a way for a mourner or somebody who was repenting to say publicly, I am unconcerned with physical comforts. And I'm unconcerned with the physical attractions of my body. And I'm just, I'm ruined. And I don't care how I feel outwardly because I'm ruined inwardly. And so it was a way for them to demonstrate their inward ruin in a very outward fashion. Same thing with ashes. 
When you sat down in a heap of ashes, you sat down in the, down in the results of something that had been ruined by fire. So you cover yourself with ashes in order to demonstrate, I care nothing about outward appearances or bodily cleanliness or bodily comforts because I am so distraught over what goes on inside. It was the outward expression. And that's what the king did. He got off his throne, laid aside his robe, put on sackcloth, and covered himself in ashes. And he's leading the people by example. Those are his deeds. Now, friends, this is an amazing response. He said, why is it so amazing? Ask yourself this. Is it not amazing that the most powerful, the most well-known, the most influential, and the greatest monarch on the face of the earth at the time would humble himself to this degree? Kings are not usually known for their humility, are they? Because they're kings. You don't get to be a king by being humble and serving other people. You get to be a king by being prideful and arrogant and destroying other people. That's how you got to be a king in those days. Not by serving, not by humility. Kings were known for their pride. So prideful were kings that, listen, they couldn't even take reproof or admonition from their peers. They're so arrogant. Seldom or rarely, if ever, does a humble man become a king. And if it does happen, the humility doesn't last long. Why? Because they get puffed up and they get prideful. That is why people who are well-known and famous and rich and powerful, seldom get saved. Why is that? Because pride stands in the way. And the more wealthy you are, the more well-known you are, the more popular you are, the more powerful you are, the more prideful you are. Almost inevitably speaking. And so those people don't typically get saved. That's why it's rare. So this is an amazing response for the king to just drop to his knees in repentance. We're going to answer this next time. What could cause that? Is revival the work of men, or is it the work of God? Was this Jonah's doing, or something else going on behind the scenes with the king? Well, that's the actions of the king. Now I want you to look at the announcement of the king, verses 7 and 8. He issued a proclamation and has said in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, Do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. Now there's a couple... Very odd things about the proclamation. One of them I think you probably noticed. A second one you probably didn't notice. The first odd thing about this proclamation is the mention of nobles. We don't read in history, and it wasn't typical for a king to issue any kind of proclamation or decree in conjunction with his nobles, particularly Assyrian kings. Assyrian kings usually said, I, the king, say this, and you're going to do it or you're going to die. And that was the way it was. It was never in conjunction with the nobles. And so I started asking myself, why would the king issue a decree like this in conjunction with the nobles? I think two reasons. Number one, because all of the nobles joined with the king in his repentance. So you have not only just one incredibly powerful monarch humbling himself, but his whole administration. His whole administration is caught up in this. His cabinet, as it were, all of his nobility, his advisors, the people who are close to him, his family, his close relatives, all of them are overcome with grief and all of them are repenting. A second reason I think the king mentions this is because if the decree like this went out from just the king, the populace or the masses might, and you and I would think this, they might start thinking to themselves, oh, the king has gone loopy. It's just a matter of time before somebody kills him and we have a new king because he has lost his marbles. But this goes out for the king and his nobles to say, no, this is the entire administration of the Assyrian government is saying, this is the new policy of the land. We are all going to repent. 
Now, the second odd thing about the proclamation, and you notice this, is the presence of what? Animals. Animals. Twice in the text, man is linked with animals. Let man and beast not eat or drink a thing, and let the beasts put on sackcloth. Or the men were to put sackcloth on their beasts. He's not talking about pets. He's not talking about uh, uh, cats and dogs and things like that. He's talking about beasts of burden, oxen, horses, uh, cattle, things like that, were to have these outward visible manifestations. Now, why is that? What's going on there? That sounds odd to us, doesn't it? Once again, it wasn't odd to the Oriental mind. There's actually historical records, like among the Persians, Masistius, a Persian uh, master, when he fell, when he died, the Persian Empire was recorded to have cut the manes of their horses and shaved their own heads as a sign of grief. We do something similar to this, similar to this in our day. When you, it's in a funeral procession, right? When somebody dies in the funeral procession, at least it used to be this way before all turning on headlights was mandatory for everybody and they made automobiles where all the lights were automatically turned on, you would drive very slowly and you would turn on your headlights. As a way of what? Demonstrating respect and solemnity and grief and all of that, you would drive slowly, turn on your headlights. Now, they make cars where the headlights automatically come on. You can't turn them off even if you want to. So we're going to have to put paper over top of the headlights or something to block them out and maybe have processions with no headlights to demonstrate that. But listen, we make our beast of burden, so to speak, our automobiles, demonstrate what we feel. In seasons of joy and rejoicing, like at a wedding, what do we do? We decorate our automobiles, right? This is the Persian, or this is the Ninevites doing the same thing. Our beast of burden are going to reflect what is going on in our hearts. There are three, and I hope I can remember all three of these, three theologically significant truths behind this linking of man and beast. So let me give them to you real quick. First of all, there is a relationship between man and beast. There is a relationship that exists between man and beast. And the relationship is this. Not that we evolved from beasts. The relationship is this. We were created. We were created like the beasts. We are like all animals and beasts. Flesh. We, like all animals and beasts, die. The gulf that separates man from animal is a finite gulf. It's a big gulf, but it's finite. The gulf that separates man animal, and angel from God is an infinite goal. It's infinite because God is wholly other and not created, and all of those other things are created. That is an infinite goal. So we have a relationship with animals and with beasts, a symbiotic relationship of sorts. That's a profound theological truth. The second theological truth is that God does have a concern for animals. We should never think that God's not concerned for animals just because they're animals. Chapter 4, verse 11, should I not have Concern over the city of Nineveh has 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand, as well as what? Many animals. God does have a concern for all of His creation and animals, except cats. This is exempt, and you don't want to be hyper-literal about saying, well, Jim said people, God cares for cats. He doesn't, so cats are exempt from that. But all other animals are under that umbrella. The third profound theological truth is that beasts share with us in our suffering. This is what links man and animals. All of creation, all of the animal kingdom, every beast on this planet groans and suffers and is drugged into suffering and into this curse of death and disease and destruction and torment. Why? Because of their own sin? No, Paul says in Romans chapter 8. It's not willingly but because of Him who subjected it in hope. They are drugged into suffering because of our sin. Our sin, Adam's sin, the curse on creation, affects all of them. And this is the profound truth. A destruction of the city of Nineveh would mean an overthrow and a destruction of all the animals in the city as well. 
There was a relationship there. In the Old Testament, when God pronounced a judgment upon a people group, He would oftentimes describe the judgment that was to come upon all of the beasts of burden and the animals. When the children of Israel came into the land of Canaan, they were sometimes given instructions to destroy every living thing, including all the livestock, all of it. Why? Because there's a connection between man and beast. Not a relationship of evolution. Don't try and drag that out of this. But a relationship. We share in creation. We share in God's concern for us. And we share in suffering and the curse that exists upon this creation. So that's why they... Look, the Ninevites did not believe that the animals were all of a sudden going to start repenting. As if these irrational beasts could understand sin and repentance and forgiveness and grace. That's not what they're thinking. What they are doing is they're demonstrating the extent of their understanding that our sin affects them. And if we are destroyed, they will be destroyed. And I want my repentance to be seen in everything I own so that it is all out before God. And perhaps God will spare both man and beast. That's the idea. So what else does God, what else do the people do? The decree required that both man and beast fast and that there be sackcloth upon them. And then a third thing, that they were to call on God earnestly. That they were to call on God earnestly. They were to cry out to God. This is how sinners are saved. You cry out to God. It's not a matter of a formulaic prayer that you pray. It's not a matter of things that you do. It is the turning of the heart to God and crying out to God for mercy. And the king knows God is not going to be tricked by an outward display of piety or an outward display of repentance. But men must earnestly not only not only show their repentance, but they must cry out to God and beg Him for mercy. Because the king knew and the people knew that this God who existed was a just God. He was powerful enough to judge their sin and that He was powerful enough to fulfill His threatening. And so they say, call out to God. Cry out to Him for mercy. Beg Him for forgiveness. Cast yourself upon Him. Plead before Him with earnestness. And that's what the people do. And then the last thing, they were to turn from their wicked ways. And the violence, the king says in the decree, and the violence that is in their hands. There was one sin for which the Assyrian people were most well known. You know what it was? Violence. They were a violent people beyond our imagination. Bloodthirsty, bloodshed. They impaled their victims alive and let them suffer. Impaled for days before they died in the hot, hot uh, desert sun. They skinned their victims alive. They stacked their corpses and their skulls outside of the conquered cities. Not to... Not because they had to, but because they liked to. And that was it. They didn't have to do this. They did it because they enjoyed the bloodshed. They did it because they enjoyed violence. They did it because they enjoyed watching people writhe and suffer in pain. They did it so that when you heard the name Assyria or Nineveh, you would remember that time you walked past the city that the Ninevites had conquered and saw all the skulls stacked up outside the city gates. That's why they did it. Just for the sheer terror and the sheer joy of it. And so the king knew there is one sin that we need to particularly turn from, and that is the sin of violence. Friends, this is what repentance is. Repentance is not, not just stopping sin, because you can stop sinning and not repent. And the king does not ask the Ninevites to just stop sinning. He doesn't ask them to delay their sinning. He doesn't ask them to slow down their sinning. He asked them to turn from their wickedness. This is repentance. Repentance is turning from sin to God. It's a twofold thing. It's, it's two sides of the same coin. You turn from something and you turn toward something. You turn from sin toward God. That's repentance. And no man can be saved without repentance. No man can be saved without repentance. You cannot say, I'm going to love my sin 
and I want my Savior. He will not take that. You cannot say, I'm going to hold on to my sin, and I'm going to take salvation. You want salvation? You let go of your sin. You want the Savior? You turn from your sin to the Savior. I was preaching at a venue a couple years back. Uh, probably five, six hundred people were in attendance, and my job was to give the gospel message. It's a big citywide crusade type thing. And so I got up and I, I gave my gospel message. Uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There's salvation in no other name. There's no other name given among men under heaven whereby men must be saved. And that was my text, and I just preached that text. I presented the gospel. I got to the end, and I went down and sort of stood by the exodus. People were sort of milling around and walking out, and these two, three guys walked up to me, and um, I think probably one of them could have taken me. And he was the guy that was talking, and he said, uh, look, I thought that was great. I thought it was excellent. I thought you're, it was persuasive. It was powerful. It was, it was really good. It was engaging. All of that was good. Guess what the next word was? But, don't you just love that word? But, when you got to the part about repentance, and you told people they had to repent in order to be saved, he said, that's where you missed the boat. Because people don't need to repent in order to be saved. You can be saved without repentance. And to add repentance to the message is to twist and distort and to misrepresent the gospel because repentance is not in the gospel. And very graciously, as you know that I am, I said to him, that's wrong. You're wrong. Paul said, I declare publicly and from house to house repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 20, verse 21. God has commanded all men everywhere to repent because He has fixed the day in which He will judge the nations. You cannot, if you will not turn from your sin, be saved. The Ninevites understood this. Sackcloth is not sufficient. Fasting is not sufficient. Decorating our beasts of burden is not sufficient. We have to stop sinning. We have to turn from that wickedness or we will not be spared. And friends, the Ninevites understood this. That God will forgive the penitent sinner. But God will not forgive the sinner who will not repent and think that his intellectual assent to the Gospel will save him. And now I ask you this. There may be people sitting here today who you think that you're saved because you believe all about the Gospel. You believe Jesus died. You believe Jesus rose again. You believe that salvation is by grace through faith alone and Christ alone. You believe all of that, but you have never turned from your sin and embraced it. You have never repented. And I'm telling you this, you can go to hell an orthodox sinner. Believing all kinds of great things about the Gospel that are true. But unless you repent toward God and place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot and you will not be saved. Repentance and faith, Charles Spurgeon said, are the two wings that fly us to the Savior. And you will not get there with just one wing. Repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're sitting here today and you have never turned from your sin, and you're thinking to yourself, I can't understand why I have no hunger for the Word of God. I have no love for God. I have no love for God's people. I can never get victory over sin. I don't understand Scripture. I understand why all of this doesn't make sense to me. It's probably because you've never repented of your sin. You may believe things intellectually, but the demons believe and they tremble. You have to turn from your sin and turn toward the Savior. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father, we thank You for a grace and a salvation that is so rich and so free, and so wonderful. We thank You for Your goodness to us in Christ, and we thank You for providing for us all that is necessary for salvation. That faith, that repentance, that Christ, that turning from our sins are all gifts of Your marvelous grace. 
And we pray, O God, that if there is somebody here today who has never trusted Christ and never turned from their sin, that you, by your Spirit and by the power of your grace and your word, would turn them from their wicked ways that they might embrace the living Savior. We thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you for a salvation that is so rich and so free to us. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.